0: My research started because of Underbelly, the television series. I wondered what the difference was between the visual and the written. During my visits with um, Carl Williams, we spoke a lot, sort of become privy to a murder which happened in Victoria. It really set me on a mission, I guess you would say, and I do tend to look a lot at corruption and now.
1: Welcome to Impact, a Sikh University podcast where our experts unpack their latest research in easy-to-understand language. We discover how these researchers are creating solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Subscribe now to Sikh University podcasts so you don't miss an episode and join the conversation on Sikh University's social media. Today, I'm here with two Sikh University researchers. Dr. Ann Ferguson, who is a lecturer in Law, Criminology and Justice, as well as Rebecca Wilcoxon, who's an Associate Lecturer in Psychology. She's also a current PhD student and she's undertaking research in forensic psychology.
0: Thanks for having us and also uh, Beck for coming along as well today because she's going to be able to help.
1: So the research topic that we're talking about today is the role police involvement plays in crafting social perceptions of policing and criminality. So I'll pass it over to Anne to get us started.
0: So my research started uh, because of Underbelly, the television series, and because of that it led me into looking at a lot of areas, including uh, the production side of Underbelly. So it was really interesting for me to find how many uh, uh, police are involved in a production and also the types of things they do to aid production, which in a way legitimise their role and also help um, craft the reality, which is never usually in a bad light for them.
1: Was it part of your PhD that you started this research? Yeah,
0: it was part of my PhD and it actually came about because I wondered what the difference was between the visual and the written. And... by that I mean um, in Victoria and around Australia you were getting nightly news about what was going on in Melbourne leading up to this particular trial. There were numerous books out that were written leading to this trial and there was also um, books that were specially crafted, I guess you would say, about underbelly. But... so, And that wasn't stopped. None of that was stopped in Victoria, but... Um, they um, decided not to air the television show because it could be prejudicial to the jury. So that's really why I started to look at it because I thought, what is the difference between me hearing about it, reading about it, but yet I can't see it? Um, Which is ironic for me, I guess. If you look historically, it's not a new thing um, and it actually... um, The first show was Philip Lord and, uh, believe it or not, Edgar J. Hoover was involved in it and it was Gangbusters. So Gangbusters used um, real FBI material and turned it into a television show. And, of course, Hoover and FBI had to have the final say on the show. And uh, that only lasted for about 13 episodes. Um, And because Hoover didn't like all the guns and the sirens and the fancy stuff that goes along with making something. He just wanted a plain, this is what happens. So it started there. And then afterwards, um, the first really big one was Dragnet. So Dragnet started out as a radio show and then later on it transferred over in the 50s to a television show. So most people know the television show but don't know much about um, the radio show. So... Dragnet um, become a household name as a television show, and I think in the nineteen nineties it was made into a film as well. So uh, had main characters, and there was always this theme uh, behind it that you know, no matter what happened, uh, the ga- the this narrative of good and bad came through, uh, and um, you know the good side always won. So it was
2: originally designed to control the narrative
0: and to. Uh To
2: present police in a positive light but being genuine about Mm. it and to recruit. Yeah, it was definitely used for that. What was the most surprising thing that you think you found out of that? How did that affect people?
0: I think it gave a a very skewed view of policing. It's also put a lot of pressure on policing. It also caused a lot of... um, cultural innuendos to occur so they had um you know young kids would be using language out of it you know not talking to you copper you know who do you think you are so there would there was sort of like almost this um celebrity status that come from being a criminal which was the opposite to what they were oh, hoping nice. for so it kind of was a double-edged sword for them so it was a really um interesting beginning of how this actually unfolded. In Australia, we had something very similar and uh, D24 was the first radio show based on the Victorian police and the Victorian police uh, paid for the show to be produced so it wasn't just a radio show that they happened to be involved in and uh, so they allowed uh, files to be used, language, etc. And they actually used it as a, um, one, to reinforce police actions and, you know, this is good, and second as a a promotional tool to get new recruits. And at the same time, on shows like Underbelly and, and things like that, they have very limited corruption that is actually shown. It's very mildly spoken about, but then it's, Um, sort of done as a one-of this never really happens and we're really shitted off at this Mm. for happening um so yes so if corruption is started to be shown the reins are pulled in a little bit and so they're very much aware of that i i also became privy to knowledge um which was about corruption and was about murders when I was actually doing my research. Um, During my visits with um, Carl Williams, um, we spoke a lot. So I saw him um, several times over a period. I used to just fly down. He'd set up a session. We would sit and we would talk. And um, so I sort of become privy to... um, a murder which happened in Victoria and um, I became aware of who had set it up. I became aware of uh, who had actually done the murder and how much it had cost. So it was kind of one of those things where, yes, it's salacious and you do want to know, but on the other hand, you don't want to know. And uh, it did actually result in when Carl was murdered, I... Someone had, uh, who knew Carl had said about me coming down and, and they thought I was a journalist. They didn't know who I was. And um, so I got this phone call this night from um, Victorian police that were investigating Carl's murder. So I said, look, I'll ring you back because I had no idea who this person was. And uh, So I rang a really good friend who's a barrister who didn't charge me, thank goodness, Um, And um, he said, yeah, and he met me down in Melbourne. So I had to fly down to Melbourne and give a statement of what I knew and what I knew from um, visiting Carl. And then they came up and took another statement and they wanted to seize all my notes, which they did, which is still in Melbourne somewhere. So they come up, they flew through, they realised that I knew something about this murder, uh, just from bits that they read. And they weren't gone from my house for very long. They, was, they must have just been down the end of the street. And they rang and said, could they come back? So I rang uh, my barrister and I said, look, what do I do? And he said, well, you've got to cooperate. But, you know, journalists and researchers have been jailed overseas for not giving over their notes. So, you know, it puts you on the back foot to start with. So I gave over my notes um, And I made a third statement. So in less than a week I'd made three police statements. And uh, so it was really um, intimidating because I became under the spotlight. Instead of me being the interviewer, I became the interviewee. So it was was really quite interesting. So we had a a bit of a turbulent time after that with um, people, um, you know, worrying about the phone being bugged. you know, it was a joke in our house if the phone dropped out that, you know, they were changing the tape, um, people sitting outside the house, um, you know, and and that sort of thing. So it was pretty harrowing. I, I didn't go anywhere um, without someone with me, um, particularly uh, family. Um, you know, I always was accompanied wherever I went uh, because of what I knew. Um And so for me it's sort of been a personal journey as well and it really made me, um, set me on a mission I guess you would say and I do tend to look a lot at corruption and now. uh, I have no problem with anyone going to jail but do it the right way, don't do it the roundabout way and I think that the informer 3838 Nicola Gobbo I think that's sort of been a bit of an eye-opener for a lot of people that um, uh, there's a blurring of boundaries happening and that that's not a good thing. That's a form of corruption, even though, you know, you might think, well, you know, they got who they wanted. But the reality is it should go... There's procedures in place for a specific reason and um, if you break those um, down, you're as bad, if not worse, than the person you're trying to get. So, um, yeah, so it was really interesting, a really interesting and, and kind of a scary time um, because the particular uh, person who ordered the hits is still not in prison.
1: Did that experience with police really open your eyes to how different it was to how it was portrayed in the media? Um, Considering you were living it.
0: Yeah, I think it did. It made me um, very wary and I know that when I was giving um, you know, interviews, I was very cagey over what I was saying. Um, so, yeah, it did kind of give me a whole different perception and, and I know that the, the police that I, I was involved with, they did want to solve this murder um, and they wanted to get this particular person because he was giving them all a bad name uh, but he's as slippery as hell he's not just they can't get him so yeah it gave me a whole insight into it and it it also I think opened my eyes to what it must feel like to be uh, someone who's getting interviewed and done nothing because it's so scary you know you get questions fired at you all the time and and one of the um ...detectives was from the fraud squad... ...so he was used to just firing and trying to catch people out. And, you know, so I was interviewed the first time for over three hours... ...and didn't have a break. Um, you know, and it was sort of like, oh gosh, okay. You know, wh- what... You know, and I was telling the truth. So I could mm. really feel if I had have been getting interviewed for a crime... Uh, ...and was uh, getting told you're a suspect... The adrenaline would be flowing, but also so would be that fear that you say the wrong thing. So yeah, it did open my eyes, and it, it also opened my eyes to policing and what they do as well. I think, and uh, how the majority of them are really um, honest, and they want the best for, and and that they realise that if there's one bad apple, it actually makes the rest look bad as well. So yeah, I think it really did. It opened my eyes to. You know, being on the other side and how intimidating it is to get asked a lot of questions.
1: I think it makes you understand as well from Beck's perspective in forensic psychology how someone that's not guilty in that situation can be interpreted completely wrong just from that situation and being put in a position that they're not used to being in.
0: Yeah, I think you know it's very much there, and and Beck, I think um, you know you've raised a lot of valid points, and we've spoken about this for. A long time. But, yeah, that whole th- – if if you went with what you were seeing and, you know, you and I spoke about lie, gay, you know, gaze detection and stuff, my palms were sweaty. If you were on a polygraph, you would have come across as lying. Yeah. So
2: you are the perfect example and this is what I study. People confuse fear with lying. Mm. And this has been done since the earliest recorded I can find is – 1000 BC they've been using methods that actually correlate with fear so somebody the irony is somebody who would get really anxious in an interview is unlikely to do anything criminal someone who is very calm like a psychopath that doesn't get kicked into that fight flight they are more likely to be the criminal so this is this is what I study and rave on about and Anne is probably sick to death of hearing it Any interviewing method or lie detection method that is picking up fear is not only probably incorrect, it's
0: very harmful. And that's, I think, um, why I like your research, because I have been on that other side and know that, you know, I I remember at one stage looking up at the wall and thinking, oh, my God, here we go, another question. And that would be seen as, oh, she's avoiding eye contact. She's lying. She's lying. And, you know, the sweaty palms and, yeah. you know, the full physical kind of symptoms. Absolutely. Let alone, you know, I remember I, w- I was breaking out in, in a rash yeah, yeah. because I'm thinking, oh, my God, what if I... I hadn't done
1: anything. Yeah. What, what is going on? Enjoying this episode? Subscribe to Seek University's podcasts on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, rate, review... And share. So you've been researching this topic now for a good part of ten years. What are some major changes that you've seen? Have we progressed positively, negatively? Obviously, social media has made social media has made a
0: huge difference. Um, It's meant people have turned away from, um, you know, the traditional form of newspapers and reading that way. It isn't um, really possible to control the social media aspect. However, they also are using a lot of social media themselves. Yeah. So, and they also have big media units. Originally, in about the 60s, there was only one police media unit based in Sydney and now there's hundreds mm. throughout Australia. So yeah. they're very much aware of that. Um,
2: when I had Facebook, I used to follow, I think it's Queensland Police... Whoever they had on there is hilarious, absolutely hilarious. And looking at it from a psychology point of view, because that person was, is so funny, it develops in you this camaraderie mm. and you trust people. So that must have elevated perceptions of police so much and they use that to, like, dob in a criminal...
0: Oh, definitely. And, I mean, Facebook is one of the most prevalent places where, you know, they will actually trace people and and, and people post all sorts of things on there. You mm-hmm. know, they brag about the crime they did, they show, yeah. you know, doing certain things. So police can actually use that information. Lots, A lot of people are kind of stupid that don't think about these things. Mm. So, But at the same time, if they put a lot of things that are related to juries or... And he plays. It has the same sort of effect too, whereas it can stir up a lot of emotions. And what you said before about, you know, you get a very sanitised view. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, because everybody has cameras these days and, and a lot of us can edit, you yeah. are able to edit and change those things as much as what you could on a television show such as a Which is the other side.
2: You stir, you, you find a copper, you stir them up, you stir them up, you stir them up until they snap. You're filming it the whole time and then you cut out that first part. Mm. So, yeah, I, I love the psychology of it, particularly with Facebook, with the people that get on there who are the crims. I mean, it drags out the narcissist. I mean, it's so effective. You put it up there, someone who's narcissistic and psychopathic. We'll put up there, hey, you didn't catch me. Uh, and it's just such an effective thing. But when you have, from a psychological point of view, you follow someone on Facebook, they put up funny things, you think of them as your friend. And you are much more likely to to dob in someone or just to give tips because you've you've built a relationship with that person. They don't know you but you start to feel like you know them. It's a similar thing like with celebrities and then Lady died when she, Princess Diana, when she died and all these people went into mourning. Somebody that you see all the time and that you like, you trust. So it's very, very clever for two reasons of social media. One, it's going to drag out the narcissist because they can't wait to show off. And two, it makes people feel like, oh, you're my friend. I did see something dodgy. Actually, I do know someone. I'm just going to let my friend know.
0: And television shows do that too because you would be amazed the rise of celebrities Mm. or criminal celebrities that came out of, say, Underbelly, right? Mm. I mean, you had Roll with Carl T-shirts, you had the company that supplied the limo uh, advertising this is the limo that was used in Underbelly, you had, um, you know, fan mail going into different people, same Mm. as you had with Chopper Reed and all his books that he wrote... Um, Roberta's wrote books as well Mick Gatto's wrote books and people are buying these so it's the same sort of thing they feel like they're connected with that person and so they've raised them up another level and, and one thing that always um, I always remember is Carl is sitting in a, pr- in a cell and saying how can you call this glamorous but you know it's seen as glamorous I, th- I think TV shows
2: for my field okay. In the field of forensic psychology, and you know these, you know the CSI effect. For people who don't know, uh, the CSI effect is when you will have the general public we think that this, there is this amazing technology out there, and profilers can look at a crime scene and tell you what his name is, where he lives, what he looks like, what he had for lunch, and they just put it through some computer the size of a building and it spits out his phone number and address.
0: And that's very true. I mean, it's caused big issues for a number of reasons, including, you know, unrealistic expectations. And it's also caused um, not just uh, for policing but also for juries... Um, because I know one example where a jurist asked, um, you know, can we see the footage of the person dying and what they were experiencing, which it just doesn't happen. But I know that it's also been very um, useful for some barristers and solicitors because even though they're not talking about the CSI effect, they're sort of saying, well, the blood spatter on the wall would have been this high if so-and-so had, you know, used a knife from a certain distance and the blood splatter across the floor. So in some ways it's been um, useful for members of the criminal justice system but for others it's really made it unrealistic. And I mean that's a classic because on TV they close a crime scene for days, weeks or however long it takes and I know that they're under pressure in reality to get that place open again. Um, you know, if it's a business, help get it up run. Um, yeah, so it's putting an awful lot of pressure on a lot of people.
2: And then we have shows like Making a Murderer, oh. and we've just published an article that is about a technology used in Making a Murderer too. Making a Murderer, in a way, was really good because it showed how ineffective. Um, interviewing particularly the type that's used in the US how dangerous it is so um, a technique called the read technique um, is very dangerous and and leads to a lot of inaccurate convictions so as much as I'm anti CSI shows there have been things that have come out and there's so many Netflix shows now these real life and they're showing the interviews and interviewing techniques that luckily we don't do here, but that are so dangerous. So there's been a real... its We've got this mixture, we've got this social media, and we see these horrific things happen that must give such a bad name to police, particularly in the US, and we've seen it here. Um, then
0: we've got this unrealistic expectations yeah, so it's a double edged sword all round. And so making like, a murderer is Oh it's kind of really interesting to see it from that side.
2: It's good and bad. Yeah. As you know with the EEG lie detection. Oh my goodness, there's so many problems with it. But now that's pushed this narrative that we can have these little machines that we can come in and put on your head and know everything. So it's it's been very interesting. From my side, it can be very, very frustrating,
0: and I mean, let's be honest. A lot of the offenders in, in all this stuff um, are ethnic bases, so yeah. it creates that other. Yeah. So it, it reinforces that i that narrative about you need to be afraid of what we class as other and yeah. then, then it's okay to do what's, what you want to them because they're less than us yeah. and, and that also comes through very much in all the narratives that you watch and that's not just um, a visual thing, that goes right back to sort of things like um, Conan Arthur Doyle when he wrote Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. The other was always um, a, a someone of an ethnic origin yeah. who was always the baddie Mm-hmm. And so that narrative is, is kind of reinforced as it's going Black hat, it. white hat of the cowboys. Yep. yep. Yeah. You could tell a bad guy by the black hat. Exactly. You know, if they had a white hat, they were goodies. Yeah. If they had a black hat, oh, yeah. you looked out for them. Yeah. Too bad if they had a grey one, eh? <laughs>
1: yeah. Do you think that outcomes of your research have made any impact? Um, oh,
0: uh, I think they have. I think I've reached a number of people and I'm still doing... Uh, projects and things off of my research. Um, What kind
1: of projects are you?
0: um, I'm actually doing stuff on organised crime. I've done some stuff on... uh, I'm actually working on this particular thing that we're talking about now, about police involvement in television shows. I also wrote a piece on, um, you know, uh, what it's like for families who are represented. So I've actually wrote a piece based totally on their their side of the story as well. Um, So I've kind of done a bit of research all over. I'm really a cultural criminologist more than a straight criminologist. To
2: summarise, from my opinion, looking at it from a forensic psychology point of view, television on the whole has been very damaging. And it's negatively impacted on the police because of this CSI effect that they expect them to do all these amazing things. So what do you think overall from from your,
0: from looking at it from a criminology perspective? I think um, it's added a lot of pressure. It has made people a little bit more aware of what goes on. It has been advantaged... Uh, to place in a lot of that good and bad narrative.
1: To find out more about how CQ University is changing lives through real-world research, check out our website in the description and remember to subscribe to CQ University Podcasts so you don't miss an episode.